Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. A little bit different than sermon format. And we'll be presenting teachings from the Word of God. So periodically we'll stop and let anyone ask questions for clarification purposes only. We'll wait for, we'll have a wider, wider bodied question and answer session we can have at the end. But if you need some clarification, if you didn't grab a scripture, if you needed me to repeat something just for clarification purposes, don't be afraid to put up your hand. Stop the process for a second so we can reset, get better clarified and move on. But for wider open-ended questions, we will have a, a question and answer session at the end. So I'm going to ask a question as we start. It's going to sound perhaps silly, but it's very, very important. How many of you here, and I, I would like that show of hands, absolutely and unequivocally believe that the Bible is the absolute word of God? Okay, that's everyone's hand is raised from what I can see. Now that's not meant as a silly start, start uh, jumping off point. It's an actual very important point and very important part of the equation as we move through these studies. Because once we agree on this, because this study is specifically for people who believe that the Bible is the Word of God. This is not a study where I'm going to try to debate whether the Bible is the Word of God and debate the teachings of Plato versus teachings of the Bible. What we're doing here, and the reason why I asked for a show of hands, is everybody here, at this point, believes that this is the absolute Word of God. That's an important starting point. Now we begin the teachings from the Word of God to see what the Bible says about this topic of the immortal soul. Because once we agree on this specific parameter, the next step is to study these teachings together. In this case, the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. Does the Bible teach it? If so, we'll find it in there. Great, we move on. If not, what does it teach? But we're agreeing that this is the text from, from which we're getting our, our belief system. So we'll start out by defining this doctrine of the immortality of the soul. And it is the belief that the real person exists within this fleshly temporal body and continues to exist in some other form immediately upon the death of this body. So what? So what does, what does that have to do with anything? As we saw, those of you who were here and last month with the once saved, always saved doctrine, this is, another, this is another doctrine that is important to understand because so many other incorrect doctrines can stem off of it. And we'll see today in the sermon following this, Deacon Jan has a message on the resurrections, that stems perfectly off of whether the immortality of the soul exists or not. If the soul is immortal... What's the need for a resurrection? And I don't want to take any steam away from his message, but the point being, doctrines connect. And this is one of those foundational doctrines that if we, if we, get, if we get set straight on this doctrine, it answers other questions. And, other, and not just answers other, other questions, but other doctrines and other teachings become so clear so fast. And we'll get to see that later when he gets to his message. For instance... And again, talking about this interconnection of doctrine. If we continue to exist after death, then what happens to us? Do we go to hell? Do we go to heaven? Are we in purgatory? Those are doctrines. If a part of us continues to exist, 
Then do evil people burn in torment forever? That's important. I want to know. If, if I don't do well, I'm going to go, am I going to burn in hell in torment forever? If we have always, and that's part of it too, or will always exist, then what about reincarnation into other life forms? We've heard this, uh, this in the 70s, it was very popular. I think Shirley MacLaine was one of the first famous people to be a proponent of reincarnation. This extends into, this doctrine extends into sorcery, consoles of ever-existing family members, friends, communicate with us. That's that understanding this immortality of the soul can lay to rest those questions. And we'll even see at the end that this affects our understanding of God and what form he takes. So before we get into the Bible, let's talk about the origin of this. Where does this come from? As we've been seeing with the, some of the other doctrines and studies that we've been doing, other philosophies play an important role. Those of you who are familiar with history will know that the Egyptians believed in the immortality of the soul. That's why they had these grandiose burial rituals. Tombs and pyramids were all built around setting up their kings and their, their rich people for a, a, the next life, wherever they were going. They would put all the gold and all of the riches inside their tombs to make sure that in their afterlife they were looked after. Hinduism. Hinduism has believed for centuries in the transmigration of the soul and that death is a door to a new life. That this is some, some temporal body that when it dies, we move on into some other new life form. And we're not going to, we're just going to set some history here. I'm not here to teach uh, in detail of what these other, other folks believe, but it's important to know where this came from. The Greeks, as we've learned in past studies, play a huge, huge role in these doctrines. We know that Plato, who was a 4th century BC philosopher, he was a student of Socrates, had a profound influence on religious scholars over the centuries and plays a key role here. He wrote a document or a, a book called Phaedo, Phaedo, it's spelled P-H-A-E-D-O, and it contained four arguments for immortality. And again, we're not going to cover them in complete detail here, but they revolve around proving that the soul is an eternal form that cannot die, has always existed, and will continue on. And he based his texts on the retelling of the story of Socrates' last day on earth, and his revealing, the revealing of Socrates, that is, of his knowledge to a close group of students, which included this gentleman named Phaedo. And in it, amongst the many, the four aspects of, of immortality, it is described, it describes the Greek, the Greek mentality. That the foundation of Greek teaching is dualism, is a simple dualism. The Greeks divided the universe into spirit and matter. So there were two things. Matter is bad, spirit is good. That now extends into that which is bad is temporary, and that which is good is eternal. So we can see the mindset separating the two aspects of man. There's a spirit and there's a physical. One is bad, one is good. One is temporary, one is eternal. Once we agree to all of that, once the, not we, but once that is agreed to, it was easy to see how, man, how the Greeks divided man into body and soul. 
The body is physical, and therefore evil and temporary. The soul is good, and therefore eternal. From this, Christian philosophers led to a rewriting of their true doctrines over time based on this Greek philosophy. It started with a philosopher, a Greek theologian in the 3rd century by the name of Origen. And keep in mind, I said 3rd century. So this is a couple of centuries after the apostles had died, that those who had witnessed the, the truth of Jesus Christ had long left this earth. And he organized Christian doctrine into what was almost a systematic theology project of sorts. He tried to organize all of Christian doctrine and this immortality of the soul became a key cog in this, in this uh, system. A century or two later, Augustine, he, was, he was, lived in the 4th to 5th century, he added to what Origen had created. Following that, several centuries later, in his, in his uh, treatise, The Summa Theologica, Thomas Aquinas, which was in the 13th century, he again expanded on the Christian doctrine from which this immortality of the soul exists. Since then, we know the details of what the, the doctrines of the Catholic Church, the Protestant Reformation that occurred, uh, agreed with most of the, the, as we know, the Protestant Church veered off of the Catholic Church over single differences, but most of the, the Protestant reformers believe in this immortality of the soul. And then, in recent decades, the, we have these New Age concepts and reincarnation concepts that also teach forms of this doctrine. So remember when I asked you if you absolutely and unequivocally believed in the Bible. This is important for our discussion because philosophy and these religious beliefs do not come from Scripture. When you go through the history, it, uh, Plato based his, his beliefs on something that Socrates had said. Socrates believed it because he was dying. So it made sense that if I'm dying, I better, maybe I better believe in an immortal soul. I don't have any, any, any scriptural context for it, but that, was, that is what, what he, he taught and believed. If we are having a Christian Bible study discussion, then our beliefs come from the Bible. That's what we base our discussion on. Not philosophies, not whims. We can certainly bring them into account, but we, we base our belief system entirely and solely on what scripture tells us. A couple of writers, one was William Tyndale, you'll know the name William Tyndale of, uh, of uh, scripture fame, English reformer, he translated the Bible. He openly opposed this doctrine and blamed it on the papacy, the Catholic popes. And here's what he said. You, referring to the papacy, in putting them, souls in heaven, hell, and purgatory, destroy the arguments wherewith Christ and Paul prove the resurrection. So we see here that now we've got two doctrines in play, just like we said. that These are not single existent doctrines that can be thought of separately. But when we understand how the Bible works and teaches, they all interconnect. And Tyndale understood that. He continues, the true faith puts the resurrection, which, which we be warned to look for every hour. The heathen philosophers denying that did put that the soul did forever live. 
So if we're to look for the resurrection, and we believe in the immortality of the soul, we're not listening to the commands of the apostles who spoke for God. And the Pope, he continues, joins the spiritual doctrine of Christ and the fleshly doctrine of the philosophers together. And that's exactly what happened over the centuries. It was, a, it was almost a, if we can't beat them, join them mentality. And we, they combined philosophy into the Christian movement. A, I'll quote one other. I'll just continue with the, before I go to this other gentleman. He continues, and, and again, if the souls be in heaven, tell me why they be not in a good case as the angels be, and therefore, what cause is there of the resurrection? So again, it's important to understand this immortality of the soul because so much else of what we actually believe and are told to watch for and are told to count on, like the resurrections, depend on the, the validity of this doctrine. A Wesleyan scholar by the name of J.A. Beef said the following, summarized his opinion on this this way. The phrase, the soul immortal, so frequent and conspicuous in the writings of Plato, so this is where it's found, it's in the writings of Plato, we have not found in pre-Christian literature outside the influence of Greek philosophy, nor have we found it in Christian literature until the latter part of the second century. We have noticed that all the earliest Christian writers who used this phrase were familiar with the teachings of Plato, and that one of these, Tertullian, expressly refers both the phrase and doctrine to him, and that the early Christian writers never support this doctrine by appeals to the Bible, but only by arguments similar to those of Plato. We have failed to find any trace of this doctrine in the Bible. It is altogether alien, both in phrase and thought, to the teachings of Christ and his apostles. So based on that, we're now going to dive into what does the Bible actually say. We've seen all of these origins, the Egyptians, the Hindus, the Greeks, the church. Let's go back to the actual origin in Genesis chapter 3. And the origin is five simple words laid plain for us to see at the very beginning of Scripture. Verse 2. Now let's go back to verse 1. Chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of this garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, Five words that have changed religion and the, the, our understanding forever. You will not surely die. That is the origin of the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. The serpent telling the woman, God doesn't know what he's talking about. You won't die. But this comes from the mouth of the serpent, our adversary and the father of lies. Much like what Beath wrote, and much like Tyndale it didn't come from Scripture. It didn't come from God. None of this came from those responsible for teaching truth. It was here in the Garden of Eden when the adversary presented man with the choice to think for himself apart from 
is important, not just to think for himself, but to think for himself apart from the instructions of God that led to the ability of the Egyptians, the Hindus, the Greeks, and Christian philosophers to come up with their own ideas, like the immortality of the soul. But Christians of faith, of which we all are, you all raised your hand by uh, noting that you believe that this word of God is absolutely from God, must use, we must use the Bible as our source of truth. So, what does the Bible say? In researching this, what I found was that Christian writers were taking the immortality of the soul doctrine and working backwards. And I don't want to do that. And here's what I mean by working backwards. In some of my research as to, to how Christian writers have, have confronted this doctrine, they said, well, the Greeks said that the physical was bad. So let's go into scripture and prove that the physical is good. And here's where God said on the, on the first day, everything was good. The second day, everything was good. Um, and so they, they take something from, from this Greek doctrine and they try to combat it with the Bible. This is okay, but Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, you can turn there to make sure I'm quoting it correctly. Hebrews chapter 4, and this is key as we go through this series and as you go through your studies personally. The Bible is sharper than a two, we'll read verse 12, but the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So when we use the word of God, let's use it on the offensive. Let's not try to take the Greek philosophy and combat it point for point. Let's just find out what the Bible says. And by doing so, we're actually going to see that it makes, it makes understanding these difficult scriptures so much easier. Because we don't have to be afraid of those scriptures because we've got the context of the entire Bible. And we'll get to that part at the end. So let's jump into this. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. And let's talk about soul, what the soul is. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to move a little quicker here just to get through some of this. But there will be time at the end to ask some questions. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Or in some translations like the King James, man became a living soul. This word soul from Strong's, the Hebrew 5315, is the word nephesh. You might have heard that before. And it refers to any being or animal of vitality. Notice the sequence, and it is very important. God made the physical body from the dust of the ground. He then breathed into man this breath of life, and the combination of those two made man a living soul. He didn't breathe into man a living soul. This soul didn't exist before. He breathed into man the breath of life, and the combination of this, of this animation made man a soul. So something God breathed into an actual tangible form, in this case, is a soul. This word nephesh is used in various ways in the Old Testament. We're going to pick through a few right now just to 
get some, some sense of this word soul. Back to the first chapter of Genesis, verse 24. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth according to each kind, each according to its kind, and it was so. This living creature is a nephesh. Same, same word as describing the human condition. Now, it's not the end of the story, but the purpose here is to see that that is a, a physical existence for this word soul. Leviticus chapter 21. Let's go to Leviticus 21 and see another use of this word nephesh. We're going to pick it up in verse 10. He, that's Leviticus 21, verse 10, he was the high priest among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who was consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes, nor shall he go near any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or his mother. This dead body is the same word, nephesh. In this case, unlike Genesis 2, where it was a living nephesh, it is now a dead nephesh because the, the life is non-existent. So that's another key important understanding to this word nephesh. In this case, this physical body is confirmed here as this nephesh, but it is without life. So it is not a living nephesh, but in essence a dead nephesh. And let's now go to Ezekiel chapter 4. There's an interesting passage in Ezekiel that helps us understand this concept of nephesh being the soul. Ephesians chapter 4. Sorry, did I say Ephesians? I meant Ezekiel. Sorry. I'll give you a couple of seconds to get back to uh, Ezekiel chapter 4. Verse 13. Again, we'll pick it up in the middle of the account. Then the Lord said, So shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles, where I will drive them. So I said, Ah, Lord God, indeed I have never defiled myself from my youth till now. I have never eaten what died of itself and was torn by beasts, nor has abominable flesh ever come into my mouth. And here this is describing Nephesh as well. And that food is used to fuel the physical body. In this case, Ezekiel is making note that his body, this word myself, is the word nephesh. He has not defiled his nephesh through the eating of improper food. So again, it comes back to this concept of a living being, a living creature. And in this case, he's making note that his body has not been made unclean through this ingestion of unacceptable food. So this body is a soul because it has the breath of life. Let's now look at death. Death plays an important part here. Genesis chapter 2. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to set the stage here through some understanding of this word soul to get to the one point there's a key understanding that will set the stage for all of this. So we're leading up to this one point I want to get to which will take, which will take some time to go through. So we're just sort of setting this up. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. Let's 
Verse 50. Then the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the, the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So what happens to this nephesh, this living being, when it comes to the end of this life? God says, life ends. You die. That life ends and one ceases, completely ceases to exist. And we'll see this covered in other scriptures. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 18. So the soul is a living being made possible through God-breathed life that when it comes to its end, dies. And life ceases to exist. Ezekiel chapter 18. Verse 3, as I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. He repeats this later on in verse 20. Let's go to verse 19. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them, and he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. So we're now taking this living being and seeing what happens at the end of this life. And so far what we're seeing is this word death. What does that mean? Does death mean the body falls down and simply the spirit or whatever, whatever makes up our thoughts now just uh, transforms into something else, decides to go to heaven, decides to occupy space. Is that what it means? Or is there just complete non-existence? Sure, yeah, please.
Sure, that's a good way to look at it, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And everyone wants to know what happens when they die. So folks like Socrates explain it away to say, I'm okay, we live on. There's no, there's no proof. And as children of God, children of the covenant, where do we take our truth from? And we really have only one source, and that is Scripture. Okay? Thank you. Let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 to get a little more understanding of this concept of death. Rather than just using the word death, as we've seen so far, the soul that sins shall die, what does that actually mean? And for that, we're going to go to Ecclesiastes to start. Chapter 9, verse 5. For the living know that they will die. There's, that's, that's not, everyone agrees that we will die. Whether you're a Greek, a Greek philosopher, a Hindu philosopher, something happens at the end of this life and it is called death. But the dead know nothing. That's what scripture tells us. The dead simply know nothing. They have no more reward, but the memory of them is forgotten. Their minds do not exist, Scripture tells us. They have no memory when they are in the state of death. It is, it is like being in a very unconscious form of sleep. Some people have a lot of dreams when they sleep. I'm a dead sleeper. When I, I go to sleep, I wake up in the morning, I have no idea. The, the house could have burned down around me and I would not have known the difference. Because the dead... Like, like an unconscious, completely deep sleep, have no memory, have no, no, no knowledge of anything. Also their love, verse 6, their hatred and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. So in that state, there's no hope. There's no memory. There's no jealousy. There's no, there's no emotion in that state. That's not the end of the story, and we'll get to that in the, the sermon later, because there is hope. But in this state of death, there is no hope, apart from other truths. But, but strictly taking this, there's no hope that I will extend into another life form, another body, take the form of an a Indian princess in some other life. If you're reincarnated, you're simply dead. The dead know nothing, there's no conscious memory, you're simply for all intents and purposes, asleep. Let's go now to Psalms chapter 6. Ray. Uh, yeah, while you're in Ecclesiastes, there, Ecclesiastes 12, 7, how would you explain that there is, I guess, no only scripture in the whole Bible that says it, but how can you, can you hold that for the end? And there's a purpose for working through everything. And the reason I want to do that is I want to show that we don't pick out... Uh, I don't, what I don't want to do is pick out a verse midstream. Okay? But you'll be the first... I'll come right back to you first when we open it up. Because that's important. That's really, really important. And it's a, it's a, it's a solid, super question. Okay. So uh, Psalms chapter 6. The sixth psalm. The sixth psalm, verse 4. Return, O Lord, and deliver me. From what? Deliver me from what? 
O save me for your mercy's sake, for in death there is no remembrance of you, and in the grave, who will give you thanks? So without some sort of intervention from God, we see that the, the concept in Scripture that we keep seeing over and over is, for all intents and purposes, once you're dead, you're dead. There is nothing else. When you're in the state of death, there is no conscious existence. It requires, in this case, David is asking for salvation. And that, again, is a whole other topic of hope. Because what David understood here is that death in of itself ends life. And there is no... There, beyond something else, there's just simply non-existence. But that's the Old Testament, you might say. History has proven that we become enlightened over time. We see that through the, the examples of philosophers that in the belief that we become enlightened over time. So let's go to the New Testament. And we'll see some apparently confusing scriptures, which we will look at first, and then go to the key point that I want to get to, to tie all this together. So we're going to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Verse 27. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So the New Testament brings in this concept of body and soul, that you can kill the body, but you can't kill the soul. Don't get confused here. I'm not going to answer that right now. We're going to move, move on to something else. But the New Testament here talks about death of the body. So let's go forward to Matthew chapter 16. Verse 26. So Christ there talks about fear those who can kill the body and soul. Don't fear those who can only kill the body. Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And again, this soul in the Greek is this word psyche, which means breath. It's 5590 that refers to the breath. When we see the word body, and this is important too, it's the word soma, and we're going to, go, going to get to that. And it's an actual, refers to an actual, an actual animate body. But now let's go to something else here. Romans chapter 6. One of the more famous, more well-known scriptures in the Christian community. We see the wages of sin, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that death, the end of life, the end of the soul, is payment for the wages of our sins. But God's gift is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So does the soul die or does it not die? We know the body dies. What happens to this thing called the soul? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the key to understanding this concept of the immortality of the soul. And ties in, and when we, we've set up in the understanding of a soul, this nafish, we under, we've set up this understanding that it is the physical body 
that God has breathed into man this breath of life and man has become a living soul, that at some point in one's life, life comes to an end, and that end of life is simply lack of existence. There's no conscience, there's no memory, there's no emotion. We are simply asleep in the grave, in the ground, completely unaware of anything that goes on around us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And to this group of Corinthians, and we've done deep studies into this book throughout the course of the last year, Paul asks the same age-old question. And as we consider this passage and its profound implications on this doctrine, we see this from the very modern and very liberal, I use that in quotes, Apostle Paul. Paul has been known as to be very modern, very liberal, lots of, of what of what we hear, some of these, uh, uh, these doctrines that we're going to be tackling over the next year, people believe are actually said by people, folks like the Apostle Paul. But what does he actually say? Let's open up his words and read what it actually says. And he asks in verse 35 this same age-old question. Someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? That's an important question. What happens when I die? Everyone wants to know. I want to know. What happens when this nephesh simply falls away and ceases to exist? Foolish one, he continues, what you sow is not, what you, is not made alive until, unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. When we break down what Paul is saying here, is that for something to be alive... It requires a body. For a seed to be alive, it requires the body of the seed. If you're a tree, you have the body of a tree. If you're a human being, you have a body. And he's setting, him, he's setting up the answer to this question by getting right down to the basics of a seed. What you sow, you do not sow that body, what that body shall be, but mere grain perhaps wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he pleases and to each seed its own body. So a seed is planted and it becomes something else because that is what this seed is going to be. That's what God has ordained this seed to be. But it, it, in order for it to be alive, it becomes a body of something, whether it's, whether it's grain, a tree. As Paul says here, God gives it the body as he pleases to that seed that it, of its own body. So verse 39, let's, let's look at here and we'll see that Paul is going to set his main point that we will get to by referring to various other kinds of bodies in his creation. All flesh is not the same flesh, verse 39, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So there are various types of body that God has said here. There are terrestrial bodies. We see the stars, the stars and the planets. There are bodies here on this earth, whether it be human bodies, animal bodies, fish, birds. Verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. His main point to answer verse 35, which was what happens when you die, is answered here in this resurrection of the dead. 
And I hope I'm not taking too much away from Deacon Jan's sermon today. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. So we've got this natural body, and we've got this spiritual body. When we look into the Greek here, and, and you might have remembered this from last year, when we studied this back in our study of Corinthians, this natural, animate, physical body is this soma, which means body, and then the natural or animate part is this soma psychikos. So in our existence now, we have this soma psychikos. We have this natural, animate body within which the seed exists. And we're going to still get to that. It is raised... So this hope that we have when the body is raised, that there is something after death. But on, uh, it is raised into a soma pneumaticos. That there is an actual spiritual body that we will be occupying. What form that takes, we're going to have to wait and see. But what this, this says is that we die a natural body. We are raised into this soma pneumaticos. It is not a, a, we'll just exist wherever we happen to exist. We actually will have a spiritual body. Because life does not exist outside of a body. The body dies, the natural body dies. For it to be raised, it is raised into a spiritual body. It cannot just, the body dies and then the spirit floats off to somewhere. Like the immortality of the soul doctrine believes that it just goes to heaven. When we, are, when we are raised, we are raised into another body, a spiritual body, and it requires a spirit body. Unlike the beliefs of much of philosophy, the spirit cannot simply be free-flowing wherever it wants to exist. A body requires a spirit. We have the human spirit in us. That's this breath of life that God breathes into us, and we become a living being. We, we have this human spirit to think and reason and, and speak and talk, Inside this animate body, the animate body dies. We know nothing, Scripture says. When we are raised, we now have this spiritual soma pneumaticos, this ethereal, supernatural, spiritual body. Verse 46 continues. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are, all, so are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Paul refers right back to creation when God breathed life into man, but made us into his image. And we'll get to that in a second. So now this sets up, and I don't want to take too much away from Deacon Jan, so I'm sure he's going to cover this. This now sets up Paul's explanation of eternal life and the resurrection doctrine. By understanding that the spirit, the, the, the soul, the, the mind of man cannot exist outside of a body. That we, are, we, have it, we have this physical body that we have first. And when we are raised, we will be raised into a spiritual body. And we'll cover, there's, there's more scriptures that back that up. 
the spirit, the soul, does not exist outside of a body. That it requires a body. So that now we have this hope of a resurrection into a spiritual body. Let's look at this. Uh, let's go back to Psalms chapter 13. Wow, time's running on here. Psalms chapter 13. Because in the interim, between the death of the sumo sukakos and the resurrection into the sumo pneumathikos, we get more evidence of what this death really means. Verse 3, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God, enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. So death becomes more like sleep. It is not an existence. Psalms 146. Psalms 146. Verse 4. His spirit departs, he returns to his earth, and that very day his plans perish. So the body returns to the earth, and something happens to the spirit, because it's still required for when God raises man from the ground. And you can see that. I invite you to read uh, Ezekiel chapter 37 as an example. The valley of the dry bones. When we are res- this, this hope of the resurrection, the spirit is saved in some capacity, for re-entry into this sumo, this new body, this spiritual body, this ethereal supernatural body, this sumo pneumaticos. But we still have clear definition from Scripture, and there's other ones, Psalms 115.17, you can write down, we don't have time to get to all of these, Matthew 27.52, but let's look at Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. Because there is death, and then we just read that the spirit is removed from the body, and we need to explain that. Peter chapter 3, verse, verse 4, jumping into the context and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So our, the fathers of our, of our faith, those who have come before us, are simply asleep and waiting for this hope of this resurrection, for their, their bodies to be resurrected into this sumo pneumaticos, this ethereal body that we will now in, 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 uh, inhabit in this next life. So we talked about Matthew 10, Matthew 16, and Romans 6, these confusing scriptures that talk about beware those who can kill the, the body and not kill the soul, or and kill the soul. Don't worry about those who can simply kill the body. And we've seen how the Bible systematically goes through and, and shows that we are a soul, we are a living being that has existence now. When this life comes to an end, we die. We have no memory, no emotion, no existence of any kind until this future time when we are raised into this ethereal body. So what happens to this spirit? How can we read in, in Psalms 13 where the, the spirit is separated as the body dies? 
but still factor into the doctrine that we read that the body, that the mind has said, the, the dead simply know nothing. Several places we see that unequivocally. The dead know nothing. There's no memory. There's no emotion. Let's think of it today as a thumb drive. We have, we can put, let's bring it down into today's terms. We have these things called thumb drives. They, about this long, they're about the size of my thumb. They hold innumerable amounts of data and knowledge. So if I had a thumb drive here and I handed it to you, there's potential in that thumb drive to show whatever's on it. It could be a movie, it could be a scientific discovery, it could be a computer program that, that uh, has some technology greater than nuclear technology. Who knows what is on there? But it's potential, and it's completely useless without a piece of hardware for it to plug into. For you, for, do you plug it into a laptop or a PC? Without that hardware, without that body, this, this input is completely useless. To understand this concept of what happens to the dead, what, does this clearly God reintroduces the spirit into a sumo pneumaticos at some point in the future. When I use the word spirit, it reintroduces your mind, your history. And it's like a thumb drive that is, that is reserved in God's presence. It's held. It returns to God somehow. We don't, we don't always know the details. We just simply know what God has for us. And then at some point in the future, it's reintroduced like a thumb drive into a computer, into the sumo pneumaticos, and we are alive again. And we see this. We can see this in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. Now, this is not an example of sumo pneumaticos. This is an example of sumo sukakos, a physical body. But it is an example of a resurrection where the mind can be reintroduced in that respect. The hand of the Lord, verse 1, came upon me. This is referring to a resurrection event in the future. And brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley. And it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were many, very many open in the valley, and indeed they were, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. And again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. There comes a point where God will introduce life into a body, whether it's a sumo whether it's a physical body, this natural body, or whether it's this spiritual, ethereal body, he will reintroduce life into it at some point in the future. So how do we deal with... Well, let's step back one second and see the extensions of this belief that the spirit cannot exist outside of a body function, a body of some kind. And this, we see this in Genesis chapter 1, and we will see it in Revelation. We'll see this at the beginning of Scripture, and we'll see it at the end of Scripture. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man into our image, according to our likeness. So God has an image, and he has a likeness. The likeness is his character. We've broken that down in the past, and we can do that. We don't have time to break that down in detail today. But he has an image. Because even spirit cannot exist 
outside of a spiritual body. And God has an image. And that image that he gave to us, the, what you see, I'm godlike. Just kidding. <laughs> but we have the image of God. Because God has a body. The spirit has a body. And God made us in his image and according to his likeness. His character, but also his appearance. And I don't want to use the word physical appearance because it's not a physical appearance. It's a, an ethereal spiritual appearance. And we go to the end of time. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 9, end of the scriptures. And we see that the same concept exists that Paul was trying to get across in his, his uh, explanation in 1 Corinthians of a natural body and then a future ethereal or spiritual body. We see this in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 as John is projected in dream into the future. Now I saw heaven opened, verse 11, and behold a white horse, and he who sat on him was faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on on white horses, And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he has a a head. He has a thigh. He has a mouth. He has eyes. Just to start in this one encapsulation of this dream. Because as Paul clearly states... The spirit can't exist outside of a bodily form. And what does that have to do with the immortality of the soul? The body simply cannot drop and its spirit be released into some vein of existence that is outside of a body. But we have hope that at some point in the future, God will answer David's request and ours and and raise us up into this ethereal body. So how do we deal with scriptures that are used by those who believe in this immortality of the soul doctrine? Because there are scriptures that will be pointed to to say, well, the Bible says this. And my whole point at the beginning of how we understand scripture is we go through the Bible we, together proving the doctrine that is in the Bible. So God made the physical body, he breathed into man this breath of life. Life at some point comes to an end. The body dies. The, that which makes up our mental capacity has no knowledge, no memory, no emotion, completely non, no existence. It somehow is returned to God. We know that. That says that. For use in the future, when we were raised, as Paul says, into this ethereal spiritual body, with which that is reintroduced to that body, like a thumb drive. And that, that's a, a, a very minimal analogy, but it's just to understand that this, this, it is not continuing to exist outside of the bodily form. And then we live on in this spiritual body into eternity, this sumo pneumaticos. So we see that doctrine from front to back, completely, completely seeing that there. We see that the, um, the entire Bible supports this in context, that we've seen life, 
the breath of life, the soul, the death, the future existence, the natural body, and the spiritual body from start to finish throughout Scripture, throughout the entire Bible. So when we see Scriptures that seem to indicate otherwise, remember that we cannot take verses out of context or use them individually to prove a point without ensuring that they are in the context of the entire Word of God. So rather than read a scripture, and we're going to take a couple of examples while we have time, and say, oh, well, it says this, so maybe the Bible does say this. In the absence of, I've gone through front to back and I've proven that there is no immortality of the soul. We live in this body, we die, we have no memory, God will resurrect us into this future body because the, the spirit cannot live outside of a bodily form. Once we've proven that, we now say, well, it can't mean that, so therefore, what does it mean? And we'll see a couple of examples here. And the other point I want to bring out is how we deal with these scriptures used to, to prove otherwise, is that the Bible is full of doctrine. And we've gone through and proven this doctrine today. But it is also full of parables, allegories, stories, history, prophecy, poetry, and genealogies. We need to ask ourselves exactly what type of writing are we reading? And how does it fit into the entire context of the doctrine you have already proven to yourself? So when we see the Bible is the word of God, which we started out with, and we have proven from front to back that there is no such thing as the immortality of the soul. And we come up on a scripture like Genesis 35. Genesis 35. So we've proven clearly from scripture there is no immortality of the soul. And this is a a simple one here. And so it was, verse 18, referring to Rachel, Jacob's wife. As her soul was departing, that she called his name Ben-Oni, for his father called him Benjamin. So we know that Rachel died in childbirth, and we see here that her soul departed. Wow, does the Bible say that something happens to the soul? We don't jump on this one. We look at this scripture in light of what we have always read and what we have proven from front to back. So we have shown from the beginning that a soul happens when God breathes into it, into a physical body, life. This body exists. It goes through life. It dies. There's no record of memory, emotion, or anything like that. It is returned to God in some sort of safekeeping for use in the future when God raises us up into this spiritual body. So what could this mean? It can't mean immortal soul because we've proven that. So therefore, all it simply means is she died. Her, her life ended. She breathed her last. Let's look at... Uh, we, there's another example in 1 Corinthians 17. You don't need to turn there for time, time's sake. Let's look at Luke 23. This is another one that is used to say, well, maybe... Christ was. Christ says here that the the we continue to exist after death. Luke twenty three. See one of the thieves on the cro- on the cross, one of the crosses beside him. Jesus said to him, "Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise." Wow, he's going to be with him today in paradise. That scripture says that. So we don't jump on that and go, hmm. This one little little example here 
is going to contradict everything I've already proven to myself. We're going to say, it can't mean that because I'm so grounded in what I've, what I've proven to myself that it simply can't mean that. So therefore, what is the best plausible explanation for this? And when we look into this, we know that Greeks did not write with punctuation. They simply wrote without punctuation. So I say to you the following. Jane walked on her head a little higher than usual. Jane walked on her head a little higher than usual. Jane walked on her head a little higher than usual. Or Jane walked on her head a little higher than usual. Did Jane walk on her head? Or did Jane walk on her head a little higher than usual? Punctuation makes a difference. So in context of we've already proven to ourselves beyond a shadow of a doubt that immortality of the soul simply doesn't exist. Is there another explanation? Let's change the comma and put it in front of I say to you today. I'm telling you today, you will be with me in paradise. At some point in the future, you will be with me in paradise. Not only does that answer that, it actually coincides with everything else that we can prove from, from the Bible, that there is a future paradise. So it's important, as, we, as I stated at the beginning, do we believe the Bible is the word of God? Unequivocally, yes. And if so, let's prove our doctrine and to prove what the Bible actually says so that when we come upon these ideas that of them by themselves could make a person think, they don't scare us. They don't, we don't question it. We simply say, I never saw that. It can't mean that. So let me figure out what it could mean. And therefore, we're not, we're not shaken because we've proven our beliefs from the Bible from start to finish. We've covered from Genesis through the Old Testament into the New Testament, right up to Revelation, to go through this doctrine that the soul is not immortal. There is a hope, and that's part of another doctrine and part of another part of this truth. There's other stuff like we know, Genesis 4, verse 10, where God says, Abel's blood is crying out to him from the ground. It can't mean that. We've already proven that. But God also speaks with emotion. Because I have a brother who died. And I'd like to meet him one day. That doesn't mean he exists now. His blood cries out to me. One day I hope to meet him. But it doesn't mean I'm throwing away an entire doctrine because of one statement. And that's the key to, to, to combating these ideas. And that's where I pointed out at the beginning where I was reading some, some how others contradict this immortality of the soul. And they take the doctrine and they try to attack it point by point. We have the Bible. Let us do the attacking. Let us prove doctrine from the Bible. And don't worry about what Greek philosophers say. Don't worry about what the Hindus say. Don't worry about what Egyptians say. We have this. We know what this is. Let's continue to study into our, our scriptures so that we then have something that comes along, like the witch of Endor, like Lazarus and the rich man, and we go, it can't mean that. So therefore, what does it mean? And it makes this whole concept much, much easier, much less scary, much less daunting, because the Bible speaks for itself. So true, true doctrine, and there are several other examples we could go through. We've run on a little long here. True doctrine builds off of true doctrine. This is why we must get it right 
and build the foundation correctly from the beginning. We build the foundation based on what God tells us, and then there's nothing to worry about. Otherwise, by not building our foundation on the beliefs of the Bible and getting them from front to back, understanding them completely and correctly, we risk a simple phrase like, you won't surely die, morphing into the chaotic set of beliefs that we now see imprisoning the minds of millions and billions throughout history. God said it from the beginning. You'll die. Life will come to an end. And in five words, someone that wasn't God has shaken the foundation of mankind that we need now to to take back. So understanding that spirit cannot exist without a body in which to exist, that it cannot simply be everywhere, lays the foundation for understanding that we do not have an immortal soul. We have a future. We have hope. But we don't have an immortal soul. We have been given a physical life. Followers of the covenant of God have been granted his Holy Spirit with the potential for eternal life and this pseudo-nomaticos, this ethereal new body. And this process is explained by other doctrines and supported by observances like the Sabbath and the Holy Days. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7. I'd say we'll go right back there. We've now come to the end of what I wanted to present. So we will open for questions. So I'll open it back up to you, Ray. Let's, you can go ahead. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> chapter 12, verse 7 says, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. So now, that, therein lies why I asked us to wait till the end. Because what we see is we've proven from front to back what we know to be true. We read in, uh, in the other, we've read in the other areas where there's, there's no memory, there's no emotion, there's no existence. So what could this mean? Somehow God needs to hang on to our record of life. Whatever, whatever word we want to use here, he uses the spirit. He hangs on to it, but it has no existence. How that works? I don't, know how, I don't know exactly how it works. I just know that it does work because the Bible is clear. It has no memory. It has no existence. The best way I like to describe it is this use of this thumb drive analogy. That the spirit, and Paul, Paul goes into that, the spirit simply cannot exist outside of a body. So while it may exist, it has no... It has no the files on my thumb drive are there. But they're useless and meaningless and, and uh, invisible, and whatever other words we want to put into it, without being able to be plugged into a source. And how God has set up existence, as, as Paul went into in 1 Corinthians 15, our spirit may exist in some form of, of in, a, in a jar, let's say, or in some sort of to be able to hold on to for God's future use. But based on all the other scriptures we read, it, it, it can't mean immortality, that it, it, it exists in some conscious state. One more thing. Sure. In uh, Luke 24, 
Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Your question is? Well, I you said yes. Oh, sorry, I should have invited you. Yeah, no, for sure. Right. I'll wait, just give me one second. I just want to um, comment back to Ecclesiastes 12.9. Um, and just maybe just a, I love the thumb drive sure. analogy. I think that really does capture very clearly. This is a filing system that God has. And when he resurrects us, he takes that filing system, plugs it back in, and we are who we are with our memories, etc. Um, the other thing that I'll add to this spirit is it what separates us from animals. Mm. So animals are nefesh. We are nefesh. The reason why we are capable of the intellect, intellectual prowess that we have, and animals can't, is because this spirit empowers us to think and communicate the way we do, and it is the bridge between this fleshly, soulish body like an animal and the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit actually connects with the spirit so that we can have a relationship with God and animals cannot. Now, when we have the Soma Pneumatikos, it's clear from scripture that we can go back and forth between the Soma Pneumatikos and the Soma Sukikos which is this fleshly body. And I won't say any more because I know uh, Deacon Jan is going to touch on that. But I, I really no, love the way good. you... Yeah. you, no, you uh, I love the way Pastor Murray has gone from end to end through the scripture. So now we know what the scripture says. So when we come to these exceptions, we have to find out how does it conform to the word of God. Cleanses themselves and repents, they clean their bodies. 
because it swept up he did and then the evil spirits come back and, and hit that person tenfold because the house is in order and swept up and then the spirits have a, a home to reside in they find that I think that's how they said it they find that house nicely swept up and the same kind of thing that that, that spirit as well needs somewhere to, sure. to be but uh, I think that's probably getting into a different part of the understanding of how how evil influ- uh, the evil Satan and his demons try to influence us, yeah. uh, and I think that's a separate a separate part of a separate doctrine, a separate understanding, separate separate from the immortality of the soul, uh, because obviously the demons and and, and Satan exist, and the evil spirit world exists when they went from from good to evil. And uh, I think that has more to do with trying to influence, influence us away from repentance, um, more so than uh, the needing of a, of a body to inhabit. It's, I think it's more inhabiting a body to try to destroy the mind so that uh, he wins. He wins a, he wins a, a soul into, uh, from God. And I don't mean to play that into a, a, a uh, that God, and, God and Satan are into a competition, but... In Satan's mind, he is. In God's mind, he's not. But in Satan's mind, he is. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I would agree. I think that the the angelic realm existed before man and existed before matter. So when matter was created, they rejoiced. So therefore, the existence of matter is not a necessary condition for angelic life. So I would be careful to couple angelic life with matter. But, but souls, we are souls. We require a body, right? Uh, they have a body as well. But there's this, I just want to separate soul from spirit. So what Murray is saying, Pastor Murray is saying, is the spirit requires a body, right? But the body does not require a spirit. I have a dog at home. It's a nefesh like me. But it doesn't require a spirit. No, the reason I brought it up is I wondered does an evil spirit also require a body? No, it has a body. It have Pastor Murray said God has a body. That's why we have a body. It has a somo pneumaticos. Exactly, is what it has. Exactly, it is. So, so you know, I have a body, but it's just as accurate for me to say I am a body. I am a body, and I will always be a body. Everybody is a body. It's just which body? And I can never exist without a body. I, I am a body. Just in a twinkling of an eye like that. Now you see me, now you don't. But when you don't, I still have a body. And it's up to me whether I manifest myself in such a way. I don't know if it's certain vibrations and I just choose a lower vibration. And now you can see me. And just like that, now you can't. I'm like the wind. And that's why it's really important, I think, that we distinguish between a spiritual body and a pneumatic body. The Bible does not say we get a spiritual body. And what would, what would freak the, the Greeks out is when Paul says, we have soma pneumaticos. This is like blasphemy to Greek philosophy. Because Christ said, when you're born again, you're like the pneuma. You're like the wind. You, you can feel the effect. You know it came from somewhere and it's going somewhere, but you don't see it. 
But the point to the Greek mind is, pneuma is on earth. Pneuma is something, it's air, ethereal, you use the term. It's, it's something. It's here on earth. It's, it's part of matter. It, it's kind of here. It's, it's in the existence. And it, dwell, it can be on earth. To the Greek mind, spirit is out there. And it has nothing to do with earth. And Paul is saying, soma pneumatikos. He's not saying soma, soma everywhere, else. everywhere else, spirit, <laughs> with no form, right? So this is really important that I think we distinguish between spirit and, and pneuma. Spirit, yeah, it goes back. And then when we're switched, it comes back and it gives us back our identity. I hope that's clear. It better be good. I really like, I've got to say, I just want to underline this again. Um, it's something I hadn't thought about. I really like how Pastor Murray brought out that the immortal soul doctrine began with Eve. And now worldwide, everybody believes that when they die, they continue to exist. Whether I come back as a cat or whether I go straight to heaven or whatever it is, no, nobody outside of the covenant community will say, when I die, I'm dead. I cease to exist, but there's still hope. That doctrine of ceasing to exist, but then coming back into existence, does not exist outside of the covenant community. Everyone else somehow believes that we carry on. And, and to, to highlight that, I think, in Genesis is great, and that's why now it's all worldwide, but the reason why we're confronting Greek philosophy is because the world was Hellenized by Alexander the Great, and then we Christianity came in the Pax Romana, 
the Roman Empire that governed the world at that time, still with Hellenization as the culture. But now the, the gospel could be preached with a language that the whole world spoke and with a road infrastructure that the Romans created that the gospel could go everywhere. But the conflict, fundamentally, which you brought out, is between Socrates and Plato and Pythagorean theories and Christianity. And if it was um, an African, let's say it was um, Hannibal, who conquered the whole world and put in infrastructure, then the conflict would be between the gospel and African doctrine and African philosophy. But it's between Greek philosophy just because of the way things unfolded. I really appreciate that. One point I wanted to close with, if there are no questions, more questions, is the understanding that we prove doctrines first and then we address questions secondarily. If we were to jump into debating Lazarus and the rich man as a great example, without having the, the basis of the doctrine first, once we understand and come to a full and complete understanding that in the immortality of the soul, that it doesn't exist, that man is simply dead, we can explain logically and calmly that that is simply an allegory talking about something completely different. It has nothing to do with the doctrine of the soul. And that it was a... Uh, and I, I bring this up specifically just because it is, a, it is a powerful parable that talks about something completely other than the immortality of the soul doctrine. And Deacon Jan had a great sermon last year that covered that in detail. But it's, it's always used to prove the immortality of the soul when it has nothing to do with the immortality of the soul. So rather than start at that starting point, we start with the Bible as its own two-edged sword, and we prove the doctrine and fit everything else against it, rather than trying to get into a debate with the Hellenists over, over well, you believe this, but I say this. I'm not even, even going to consider you, because that's not coming from the Bible. Uh, and we don't need to debate those issues, because it doesn't come from the Bible. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.